Well, good morning. It's so good to be back with you uh, here at Springbrook again this morning. And uh, I want to say thank you uh, to those of you who have been uh, praying for me over the last few weeks since I was last here. I uh, just returned uh, just a matter of days ago from, uh, uh, from the Far East and, uh, and the Middle East. And I know that uh, last time I was here, a number of you expressed uh, that you'd be praying for me. And it certainly uh, felt that as I was traveling. So thank you so much for that. You know, um, as the weather has finally gotten a little bit nicer, uh, my family and I enjoyed some time last night out in in our yard. Uh, We had a fire pit going, we made s'mores, and we played some yard games. And uh, it was was a lot of fun until in the middle of one of the games that we were playing, uh, some members of my family whose names I won't mention, uh, began to complain. Uh, They began to complain, and they started to make all sorts of excuses about why they weren't playing very well. Things like, the grass is too long. And, uh, uh, well, you know, my throw would have been better, but but, but there's a divot there, and so it bounced. And uh, I don't know if you've ever played a game with somebody who, when they're not performing at the level that they want to be performing, all of a sudden they start to make excuses and find anything and everything that they can to blame, apart from the fact that they're just doing a lousy job. Well, that's how it was uh, uh, last night. Excuses turned to blame Blame turns to uh, complaining. Complaining turns to the inability to uh, uh, focus on the game. And the, uh, the joy, the fun, kind of was quickly lost at that point. You know, sometimes as we go through difficulties, experiences in our life that we might not choose for ourselves. We can be quick to start complaining, making excuses, and if we're not careful, blaming God for what it is about our life that we're unhappy with at the time. We do it in all sorts of different ways. Uh, Most of us are good church folk, and we wouldn't necessarily say it out loud. But sometimes we can have the kind of attitude that sort of says, God, you're just not keeping your end of the bargain. How can it be that I'm going through this right now? God, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? You know, around about 430 B.C., the nation of Israel was struggling with just that same issue. You see, uh, they had been back in the land that had been promised to them for around about 70 years or so after a captivity that had taken them out of the land. And and things just weren't going the way that they expected. The economy stank. The uh, 
public safety was terrible. If you wandered outside of Jerusalem, you were in a precarious place because there were bands of robbers and raiders that would often sweep through the villages. What's worse, this proud people, this nation of Israel that had once been the, such a powerful kingdom, now were under the authority and the rulership of a foreign power, the Persian Empire. And the people of Israel were starting to complain and say, God, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Where are you? You're not fulfilling your part of the deal. And it was into that setting, into the midst of a people who were starting to blame God for everything that they didn't like, that God sent a prophet by the name of Malachi. Malachi's name simply means my messenger. And it's interesting because he was the last prophet to be sent to the people of Israel for a period of nearly 400 years until the birth of John the Baptist. We're going to be, over the next six weeks, looking together at this Old Testament book of Malachi. It's the very last book that we find in the pages of the Old Testament, and so if you have your Bible with you in a moment, I want to invite you to turn there, and if you're having difficulty finding it, if you can find Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, then just go back a page, and you're there. And what we're going to discover together as we study through this fascinating and powerful book over these next six weeks is that much of what God had to say to his people some 2,400 years ago in the midst of the difficulties and the challenges that they faced is very much up to date for our lives today. Because you see, just like the nation of Israel back then, So in our lives today, sometimes we face situations and circumstances where we are tempted to blame God. And when we do that, we begin to lose sight of His great love for us. And when we lose sight of His great love for us, it negatively impacts every other area of our lives. And so if you have your Bible with you, join me there right now, Malachi chapter 1, as we uh, study this book, this passage together this morning. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read the words, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. 
If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, one of the things you notice when you look especially at what we call the minor prophets of the Old Testament is sometimes they can be a little bit difficult for us to read and to understand. But where this uh, chapter, where this book begins, it is an announcement that it is an oracle, which really means a heavy message. But it's not just the message of some, uh, some preacher who rides into town declaring something. It is the word of the Lord. And so the people of Israel were to listen to this. And what we're going to see as we move through this book this morning and in the coming weeks is that there's a very interesting pattern. And the pattern occurs six different times through the book. God declares something to the people. And as if to preempt them, he then anticipates what their complaint is going to be. And they kind of sarcastically ask a question of God. And so we see here that this message begins, and in verse 2 it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And and, and so what we see uh, from the beginning here is that God's faithful love has never wavered, even though We may have lost sight of it. God's faithful love never wavers, even though we may lose sight of it. The people of Israel had lost sight of it in the midst of everything that they were going through. And so God sends this messenger. He gives this message, and he says, People, remember, I love you. And their response? Oh, yeah? We'll prove it, God, because you know what? Right now, as we look at the stuff going on in our life, as we look at the stuff going on in our nation, as we look at all of this, we just don't see it. Prove it, God. And God says to his people, remember Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau were two brothers. We read about them beginning in Genesis chapter 25. Uh, They uh, uh, appear there, and we learn about their life. And and, and Jacob um, is the the line from which the people of Israel later come. Uh, Esau, his brother, um, his descendants become a nation known as Edom, who uh, actually become enemies, a, a constant thorn in the side for the people of Israel. And, and, and God makes this statement here that appears several other times throughout Scripture. He says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, we struggle with that because we don't like the idea that God hates anything. But this is actually a Hebrew idiom where he is saying, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have loved less. And the point that he is making and the announcement that he makes here through this prophet is remember the fact that I have chosen you to be my own set apart, called, and holy people. 
I have chosen you, and I have not chosen the other nations. I have chosen you to be a testimony to the other nations of my great love that they might see the special relationship that we enjoy and might seek me as well. He says, remember. He says, look around. Yes, you have gone through hardship. Yes, because of your unfaithfulness, you have faced discipline, which which cast you out of the land for 70 years. But look at Edom. They also have experienced destruction. And when they try to rebuild, I will keep knocking them down because their sin is so great. But even though you have faced discipline, it is discipline, discipline like a child loved by the Father. My love for you, says God, has not changed, will not waver. It is ongoing. I love you because I love you. I have chosen you because I determined to choose you. Don't lose sight of my great love for you. He says, I will act not only in your midst, but even in the nation of Edom, that your eyes, verse 5, shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And so here, we're being reminded of the fact that God is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of all nations. And his dealings, both with those who are his people and his dealings with those who are not his people, both declare his great power and both declare his great love to those who belong to him. God starts what is going to prove to be a heavy message by reminding them that they must not lose sight of his love for them. Have you ever found yourself distracted? We all do, don't we? I mean, like, for example, when you're driving down the road and that really annoying song comes on the radio. And you think to yourself, I have got to change the channel, otherwise this song is going to be stuck in my head all day and it is going to drive me crazy. And so you lean over and you start flicking through to find, that, to, to find anything but that song when all of a sudden, thud, 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 you realize that you're kind of drifting off the side of the road. And, and it's because even for just a moment, you, you lost sight of the one thing that you're supposed to be focused on happens in different areas of our lives as well. You know, for some of us, we find ourselves losing sight of things, even in the context of our marriage. You know what? We can get so busy. We can get so distracted by other things. We're, we're taking our kids off in so many different directions to all of their different activities. Uh, uh, we're, we're, we're working hard. We're, we're dealing with this. We're fixing this issue at home. And if we're not careful, we can quickly find that we lose sight of our spouse. And, 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 and we begin to start criticizing one another. We begin to start blaming one another. We begin to focus on complaining about what the other one is doing or isn't doing. And it's because we have lost sight of the centrality of that relationship within our home. 
God is reminding his people here that just like when you're driving down the road, if you lose sight of the road, you're in a precarious position. Just like in the context of our marriage, if you lose sight of of, of the necessity of investing in your relationship and the love that you have for one another, you're in a precarious position. So, if we lose sight, if we forget, if we get distracted by everything that's going on, the fact that God passionately loves his people, it will impact everything else in our life. We will begin to complain. We will begin to blame. We will begin to criticize. And as Malachi goes on to explain, we will begin to see that losing sight of God's love leads to worthless worship. In verse 6, the prophet continues, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show you a favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you that would shut the doors, that you would not kindle on my altar, a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness is this, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and bows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Get the idea of the solemnness of this message that's being announced, don't you? And what we see unfolding here is the fact that for the people of Israel, because they lost sight of God's great and lavish love for them, that they began to despise the things of God. And even though they were going through the motions, their worship became worthless. You know, 
we actually see here this announcement, what we could uh, call uh, four signs that our worship is worthless. Uh, the first of which is found in verse 6, uh, where he says, a son, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, then where is my honor? And if a master, then where is my fear? And, and what God is saying to the people here is, is that they have lost sight of his great love, and now they are no longer honoring, respecting him uh, for who he is. That You see, they were complaining. They were criticizing. They were asking questions, but not to gain understanding. They were asking questions in such a way as to demand that God explain himself. You know the difference between those types of questions, right? Scripture tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without finding fault. We are when we lack understanding or when we don't know how we are to live for Christ in the midst of difficult circumstances. We are commanded, we are invited to come and to seek God, and he delights to respond and to give us wisdom and understanding. But that is very, very different to demanding that God explain exactly why it is that my sister is going through cancer. Of demanding of God, God, why is it that everybody else is getting a promotion and I'm still stuck in this place? God, why is it that everybody else finds school so easy and I work hard day after day after day after day and I still don't get it? Explain yourself, God. And to the nation of Israel, this message of reminder says, because you have lost sight of the fact that I delight in my love for you, you are failing to honor me. You are getting our relationship completely turned around as if I am supposed to answer you and explain myself to you. It says, if I am a master, where is my honor? If I am a, a father and you are the son, where is the respect that is due? You know what? While this may have been an issue for the people of Israel 2,400 years ago, the reality is that if we're honest in some of our lives, because of our circumstances because of some things that are difficult in your life right now and mine. Because we've been distracted from the great and lavish love of God for us. Some of us, even this morning, are in a place where we are failing to rightly honor God because we are inside, shaking our fist at him and saying, God, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Explain yourself. Or we're shaking our fist at God and saying, God, you work this issue out the way that I want it worked out, or I'm out of here. I'm bailing. I'm giving up. And God says, I am God 
And when you come to me, you need to remember that I am God. And there is a reverence and there is an honor that, is, that I am worthy of that right now you're not showing. So remember my great love for you. Because when you keep in focus the fact that I love you, then you will remember that even though things may be hard right now, because of my great love, you can know that I am faithfully working out in your life and through you something that is far greater, far better, far more precious than you can even begin to fathom. The problem is when we lose sight of God's love, we lose sight of our right and proper trust in his character. And so, uh, one of the signs that our, wor- uh, that our worship is becoming worthless because we've lost sight of our love for God is when we give Him no honor. Uh, another is, as the prophet continues here, is, is that we bring unacceptable offerings of worship. Now, that seems strange for us to, to, to hear, but, but what was happening here in, in, in Israel uh, was, uh, just as Pastor Rich mentioned earlier in the, in the book of Leviticus, there, there had been prescribed ways in which the people were to approach God, prescribed offerings that they were to bring, and they were to bring these offerings to the Lord, the best of the flocks, the first fruits of the grain, and the flocks and, and, and the cattle and the sacrifices that they were to bring were to be without spot or blemish. But as we've just heard read here in, in, in verse 7 and following, what we see is that they were bringing the, they were bringing the worst. They were bringing the, 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 the blind, the deaf, and the dumb animals. They, they were bringing the ones that's kind of like, oh, you know what, that one's probably got only about a week left to live, so I'll give that one to the Lord instead. And God says, try giving that to your governor. See what he thinks of it. You see, Israel, as I mentioned, was under the authority, was under the, the, the rulership of the Persian Empire at this particular time. And so there was a governor over this entire region. And, and uh, as a part of the rights of the governor, he claimed a certain percentage of their crops and of their flocks from all of the people. And this was then given in tribute to the king. But also, if you had a special request, if you needed the ear of the governor, if, if you were facing something and you wanted him to intervene on your behalf, then you could come to him to make an appeal. But when you came to him, you would always have to bring a gift. And and so what God is saying here is you try taking to the governor the kind of junk that you are bringing to me and see whether or not he will listen to you. You know that you could not get away with bringing that diseased, dying animal and think that he is going to grant your request. Why on earth do you think that you can come before the God of the universe with junk when you know that I am worthy of so much more? 
You see, there was a reason why God demanded that the offerings and sacrifices that they bought were without spot or blemish, that they were the best of the animals, that they were the best of the crops. Actually, there were three reasons. The first is that God is perfect and holy, that he is worthy of the very best that we can bring, and so much more. The second reason is that a sacrifice of worship, an offering of worship, is supposed to be costly. That's why it's called a sacrifice. It is supposed to to, to mean that we give something up because we recognize the surpassing worth of God our Savior. And the third reason that they were to give these pure and spotless, unblemished animals in sacrifice was because the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was supposed to point them to the spotless Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, who is himself perfect, without sin, and who offered himself on our behalf. And so God says, Our worship is worthless when we bring him unacceptable offerings of worship. Now, we may think to ourselves, well, that's back then. We don't bring animals uh, to sacrifice. Uh, we uh, uh, We don't bring grain offerings. It's true. It's true. Christ has sacrificed himself once and for all, taking our place as a payment for sin. The payment has been made. The penalty has been dealt with. Praise God. Forgiveness and life is available through him. But still, when we come before God, we are to come with worthy, costly worship. Now, folks, I'm going to step on some toes here. But one of the great maladies in the evangelical church today is how casually we take our worship of God. You show up on time for work every single day because you know if you didn't, your boss would have something to say about it. You go to the movie theater, you get there early so you can get a good seat. We show up to church 10 minutes after the service has started. What would it be like If every one of us arrived early, greeted in fellowship with one another, then made our way into the sanctuary before the service began, before the music started playing, and and we sat and we quieted our heart, and, and with a sense of expectation before God, we said, God, I'm here. Would you speak this morning? Would you free me to worship you in a way that is worthy of your great and holy name? What if, instead of seeing church as something that we fit into the schedule when nothing better comes along on a Sunday morning, we said, this is the time that I gather together in the presence of God, in the midst of His people, and nothing, not a tea time at the golf course, not an opportunity to go out on the boat on Lake Michigan, not a football game down at Soldier Field when the season comes around, none of that is going to get in the way 
of this dedicated time because worshiping God is to be costly. What are we sacrificing to come before God who is worthy of our worship? You see, when we lose sight of God's love for us, our worship just becomes cheap. In fact, that's what was happening here to the people of Israel because as it continues, as we've already read, what we, what we see is not only uh, do we bring on unacceptable offerings of worship, but we see that worship becomes for us a boring drudgery. Notice with me in verse 10, God says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. What's he saying? I wish you would just close up the temple and not even bother showing up. Because if your worship is just a matter of going through the, 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 the repetitive stages, if it's just about going through the motions, do you really think that that's true worship? A few verses later, verse 13 says, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it. You know what? The people of Israel were saying, oh, got to go to the temple again. All right, put on the robes, find the offering, make our way, give it to the priests, say a prayer, turn around, go home again until the next time I've got to go back. For some of us, Sunday morning is get out of bed. Oh, I should go to church. Shout at the kids. Come on, get ready. Why aren't you in the car? Kick the dog on the way out the house. Drive to church. Okay, all right. You know what? We're here but let's make sure that we take off as soon as the service is done, okay? Inside, sit down, sing a few songs, stand up. Oh, hope he's not going to preach too long. We go home, and then we do the same thing next week. Now, I know none of you do that. At least you don't kick the dog on the way out of the house. I don't know about the rest, but... Uh, But you see, that's what the people of Israel were doing. And God says, shut the doors. Why do you even bother? See, here's the thing. When we begin to lose sight of God's love for us, everything else is impacted. It may be that you're here this morning, and if you're honest, if you're honest, worship just seems boring to you. Kind of you're here out of routine. You've noticed that the routine is becoming a uh, a lot less routine, and that, yeah, there's been a few weeks since I was last here, and before that there was a few weeks since I was there before. You know, sometimes... Worship seems boring, not because it's boring and dull, and not because the God that we worship is boring and dull, and not because God's Word is boring and dull, but because 
we have allowed our picture of God to become so small and so comfortable. We have contented ourselves to place God in a convenient box. And in placing him in that box, we have, uh, we have put him at arm's length so that he's in a safe distance so he can't make any demands of us. Here's the thing about the Christian life, folks. If following Christ is not costing you something right now, if there is not an element of something scary about obedience to Him in your life right now, you will quickly find that, yes, things are safe and settled, but that worship becomes a dull, boring drudgery because God will always call you to step further than your own strength will carry you. He will always call you to go deeper into a relationship with Him than it feels comfortable or at times even sensible to do. But we do it because we know that He is passionate in His love for us and that in the presence of God there is a fullness of joy that going His way not only works but it brings tremendous freedom, tremendous excitement, and tremendous joy. Let me tell you, I've been walking with Christ now for 30-plus years. There has not been a dull moment whenever I have walked in obedience. The people of Israel lost sight of their love of God's love for them. When we lose sight of God's love, we start to criticize, we start to doubt, we start to question His goodness. And when we do that, we start to think, I'm not sure that I can really trust Him. So I'm not sure that I should really honor Him. So I'm not sure that I should really give Him anything that's costly. So I'm not sure that I should really step out of my comfort zone. And finally, Our worship becomes worthless when we try to cheat God. It's right here in this passage. It's what they were doing in verse 13 and 14. It says, but you say, what weariness is this? You snort, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? He says, verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name will be feared among the nations. What's he saying there? He's saying, don't make a vow and then swap it out. Don't say, I will bring this gift and then bring one that is not costly. Don't sing a song declaring this about God. And then leave that at church and go on living the way that you want to. Don't say, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. And then walk out and do your own thing. God calls us to remember his great love. To remember his great worthiness and to be on guard against worthless worship. 
Again, some of us, let's be honest, find stepping out in faith a very uncomfortable thing to do. And it's supposed to be uncomfortable because we have to depend on God. But some of us have prayed a prayer. Some of us have responded to a message that has been preached. Some of us have said, yes, God, I commit. I will give you my all. I, I, I will support the church and ministries. I'll, I'll, I'll give a tithe. And next month comes along and it's kind of like, yeah, so about that, God, things are a little short right now. So, um, you know, we're just going to skip a month until we catch up. Or, uh, you know, I, I just got five bucks to spare this month. And God says, don't say, God, you have it all. Don't say, God, it's for you. And then swap it out. Imagine what it would be like for a parent to come to their child and say, your birthday's coming up. And we are going to get you an incredible gift because we want you to know how much we love you. We want you to know that there's nobody else like you. And then the birthday rolls around, and the kid is just excited beyond belief. I'm going to get this amazing gift. Oh, I can't believe how much my mom and dad love me. The gift is given. He unwraps it with such a sense of anticipation, but as he does so, he pulls out the stinking used pair of socks that's full of holes. And the parent says, yeah, we were going to get you that other gift, but we just decided it was too much. And besides, you're not really worth that anyway. Could it be that that's how some of us come before God. We talk a great game. But we have lost sight of God's love. And in doing so, our worth, worship has become empty. What would God have you do how would he have you uh, come before him? How would he have you come in repentance, acknowledging before him, God, I have. We've had conversations about this before. I've committed this area of my life to you, and you know what? I, I, I've gone back on it. I haven't done it. Would you forgive me? If you're in that place this morning, I want to encourage you today to take time before the Lord. Just be real with Him. And beyond that, I want to remind you to look again to Christ Jesus. To look again to Him and, and to stop and to think that when you were not worthy, when you had done nothing deserving of it, but God lavished His great love upon you. And He gave His one and only Son to take your place, to die your death, to pay for your sin, and to provide new life 
forgiveness, reconciliation. Did that so that you might know him and follow him and worship him. Friends, is this a challenging passage? Yes, it is. But the call of this passage is for us to remember that God is faithful in his lavish love toward his people. And when we remember that he loves you in Christ because he loves you, he delights in you, then even when things seem like they are not going the way that we expected, instead of demanding, instead of blaming, Keep your eyes on the fact that the God of the universe loves you and is, even in what you are facing right now, accomplishing good purposes for you and for his people. And when you do so, you will learn that he is worthy of worship, that he is utterly faithful, that you can trust him And that when you do, this journey of the Christian life will never be dull. Could you pray with me? Oh God, our God, how amazing is your love for us. And yet how quickly our circumstances and struggles distract us from your good and faithful love. Lord, would you forgive us for the times that we fail to honor you as God because we begin to demand of you as if you were not God. I pray for each one of us that you would give us again a fresh vision of your lavish love toward us, that you would remind us of the grace that you have poured out on us in Christ Jesus, and that we would be a church who delights to worship you in a costly way, who prioritize our walk with you, because we recognize that you are worthy Show us areas of our life where we have begun to treat you as common, where we have begun to just go through the motions in a meaningless way. And forgive us. Place within us afresh this day a thirst for more of you and a passion to follow faithfully where you lead, trusting in your goodness, delighting in your love and finding joy in your presence as we walk obediently with you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.